Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Well, one of the things that our family has done when we go to Lake Tahoe together is if the Truckee River is full enough, there are rafting companies that let you rent you know, big rafts that can fit eight or so people and you can do a float down the Truckee River. And uh, we will go whenever the river is flowing enough. My sister will be there with her family and some other friends will be there with their kids. And so we have to get a couple of rafts to go down the river. And it's the easiest, most gentle kind of ride that you could ever have on a river. I mean, you're just barely floating. Most people are there just in inner tubes, just kind of hanging out with umbrellas and stuff like that. You feel kind of dorky if you're wearing a life jacket, you know, as you're cruising down the river. It's you, you fall out and you can just stand up and it's like, you know, <laughs> this deep. It's no big deal. And so you just kind of make a day of it. You go down the river, you find a little beach, you eat lunch, you just soak in the sun. It can be a real relaxing experience, you know, getting hot, then getting in the, the uh, cool snow melt river water, you know, and all of that. But my favorite part comes at the very end of the trip. At the very end, there are these minuscule little rapids that you have to go through. Keep in mind, there's no guide. They let you go down. You got kids, whatever. You just throw them in the boat. They, they know you're going to be fine, that you're going to make it down. But it's as rapidy as it gets at the very end. And it's my favorite, not because I'm a thrill seeker or I like whitewater rafting or something like that. I mean, I've been, it's fun and all of that. It's, that's not so much what I like. I like for our group, the utter chaos that unfolds as our two rafts are going down that particular section. Inevitably, one parent gets launched from the boat at some point and the kids freak out and everybody's yelling and screaming. There's what it, what, I mean, last year, the, 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 the girl boat, the one with the moms in it, it got stuck on this boulder out in the middle of the river for like 20 minutes. They're just there trying to figure out to dislodge this boat. And we're just standing on the side laughing. It's just, I, I love it. And the thing that I love about it is all that chaos. To me, it's the exact opposite of leadership. There's like no leadership. It's every person doing their own thing. Everybody's shouting their own directions. And it's, it's what I like is I really like seeing how every individual responds to what they perceive to be a disastrous circumstance. You know, some people get all serious. Some people start putting together a plan. Some people just start yelling. That's all they do. They just yell the whole time. And uh, it's fun for me to see on the Truckee River that kind of chaos, but it's not fun at all to see that in the church. <laughs> when there's a lack of leadership and everybody's just kind of doing what is right in their own eyes, to borrow a phrase from the book of Judges. And here in the second half of Hebrews chapter 13, the author has a vision of the church. He wants to talk to the church about leaders in the church. And how we should follow the leaders that God has given to us in the church, including, most importantly, the chief leader, the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to look at a few exhortations in this passage that are helpful to us in our modern experience of the body of Christ 
the church. And I'm going to give to you four exhortations with some observations at the end, but four exhortations. Now, a lot of times when I put together a teaching and create an outline for you, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get the truth that is there in scripture and condense it down into a statement so that you're learning the word as you learn, as you look at these different points of the teaching. But today, the four exhortations that I'm going to give to you, they are directly lifted from the text. In other words, sometimes we study passages where there are no direct exhortations. You're learning about something, and so you need a synopsis. But today, the scripture speaks very straightforwardly to us, telling us how we should live our lives today. So I'm going to point those out to you as we go through. So the first one, if you're ready for it, number one is this. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Number one, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Let's read the passage from where we see that exhortation, starting in verse seven. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away, verse 9, by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent, people who were still worshiping in the, the temple or the tabernacle in that era, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. It seems that amongst humanity, there's a constant temptation to embrace new and exciting doctrine that human beings have a propensity towards so often error. But here, the author tells his audience, he says, listen, don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Now, this is not just an anomaly of an exhortation in the New Testament, it's actually one of the more common exhortations of the New Testament. In fact, as I was putting together this teaching, there was a point where I had, I think, 15 different cross-references just listed out, and I was just going to barrage you <laughs> with a ton of passages from Paul, Peter, John, Jude, and elsewhere, Christ even himself, showing you the concern of the New Testament authors that the church not fall prey to false teaching when it comes into the midst. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he says, look, when I leave, savage wolves are going to come into the church. They're going to rise up from among you, he said to a group of elders. So this is a constant pressure in the church. So like I said, I could give you tons of scriptural references, but I wanted to give you one fuller scriptural reference. And as we're reading this, as, as I read this to you from uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, I just want you to think about the severity even that's found in the New Testament. Sometimes people will say to me, I really like the New Testament. I don't like the Old Testament. The Old Testament is very hardcore, it feels like, but the New Testament is so soft and gentle. Well, let's read this together in 2 Peter chapter 3, and, and let me, let's see if you still feel that way about the New Testament. Peter said, in, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, 
who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. In other words, they don't really announce them. They're secretly coming in, but they're destructive. Even denying the, the master who bought them, you know, that's Jesus, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So they, they take away from the cross of Christ. They take away from Jesus' atoning work. And many, verse 2, will follow their sensuality. It's one of the marks of false teaching is that it gives per- people permission to be more sensual than before. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, which can take the form of more followers, more book sales, things like that, they will exploit you with false words. So just because, in other words, someone has a really popular podcast doesn't mean you should listen to them. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 17, though, jumping down further into the passage, he says, These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. In other words, somebody's flesh or heartstrings is pulled in an erroneous direction, and the false teacher arises to say, it's okay, live that out, approve that, it's okay, enter into it, They bring them into that error. They, verse 19, promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. In other words, he says, the false teacher is saying, follow my teaching and you'll be free, but they themselves are enslaved. For that, in my mind, I have the image of an ancient slave ship leaving the coast of Africa with slaves abhorrently underneath in the belly of the ship and someone looking out to those who are still on the shore and saying, come with us. That's what a false teacher is doing. They themselves are enslaved, and they are inviting people into slavery. He goes on to say, For if they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. These are intense words that Peter gives to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is a typical exhortation throughout the New Testament, warning us about erroneous or false doctrine. So, we want to make sure that we don't enter into the various winds of doctrine that are floating through or blowing through our world today. Now, what might be some of the false doctrines prevalent in our time today uh, that people are tempted to pursue? I think one would be the normalizing of a new anti-biblical sexual ethic, the rejecting of, of Uh, you know, the honor of marriage between a man and a woman and adopting all kinds of sexual practices as normative, the minimizing of eternal judgment, the reconstruction of the doctrine of inerrancy, the inerrancy of scripture, and de-emphasizing our responsibility to the church community. I think those are some examples of erroneous winds of doctrine that are floating through the church today. 
So how can we refuse or how can we inoculate ourselves from these things? How can we make sure that we are not led away by diverse and strange teachings? Well, let's look again at the passage in front of us. He says, first of all, in verse 7, look at it with me together. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, when he says this, it seems like he's not talking about living teachers, but deceased teachers. Uh, Those who had gone before them, who had previously communicated the word of God to them. Their lives had finished. They had run their race. You could actually consider at that point the outcome of uh, their faith. And they were spiritual leaders, not just political leaders or uh, leaders in industry, because it says that they spoke the word of God to the church. So a good way for us to be protected from strange doctrine, strange teaching, is to remember the solid biblical teaching that has come before us. Now, one great way to do that is by studying the New Testament, right? The, and, and the Old Testament as well. But I say the New Testament because this is what the apostles of Jesus Christ laid down for the church. And Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 17 that we would be unified, not just to each other like a big kumbaya happy family, although he likes that kind of thing, but that we would be unified to the original apostles, that we would look at their teachings, at their doctrines, and that we would be connected to them. So we remember them. But we remember anyone who came from them after them communicating the truth that they gave to us. I think part of the reason why he's pointing them out is because he's saying, look, you can actually consider the outcome of their lives or the outcome of their teaching. You see, so often with false teachers, you don't get a chance to see the end. They emerge, they come onto the scene, they look good and flashy for a moment, but you don't get to see the end of their lives. You don't get to see the destruction and the different things that their teachings have caused. But for people in the past who have faithfully taught the word of God, you get to see a long list of faithfulness, a a long uh, wake of spiritual health that they have left behind. And so he says, remember them, consider them, be thankful for the fact that they spoke to you the word of God. You see, it's through that faithful teaching that people grow. Now, it's not always rapid, is it? You know, if I were to give you an apple tree seed and tell you to go put it in the ground and plant it in your backyard, and then I said to you, here's your directions, I want you to watch it grow, you probably wouldn't get a chair and set it next to this place where you put it in the ground and then just sit there, and he said to watch it grow, I'm going to watch it grow. No, you would understand that to watch it grow means, you know, I water it occasionally, and then I go, and every once in a while, I'll look out and I'll see some growth that has occurred. Oh, look at that. It's beginning to, I can actually see it. It's above the ground or it's, it's beginning to take shape or leaves are beginning to come, you know, and you would slowly over time see growth, which leads to fruit. This is so often how it works as we receive the word of God, isn't it? It's not a overnight thing. It doesn't happen right away, but slowly, but surely as we study the word of God together, God grows our lives. And I'm so thankful for those, not just the apostles, but those who came after the apostles who faithfully taught over the years. I'm so thankful to them for their faithfulness. One of my favorite pastors from history is a pastor named G. Campbell Morgan, 
who pastored in England, of all places, and he pastored for 20 years a church in London called the Westminster Chapel, and I can't wait to go see it when we go to visit London, because I'm going to bring some G. Campbell, uh, G. Campbell Morgan books with me <laughs> to England to read as I'm there, and I'm so thankful for his faithfulness over the years. And even though he died in, I think, 1907 or something like that, uh, I'm still thankful for the faithfulness. And we should be able to remember those who have taught us, whether through books or recorded teachings or previous pastors, we should remember those who faithfully laid down for us the word of God. That helps protect us from false teaching. But another thing that helps us is found in verse 8. Look at it with me. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. A great aid against false teaching is to remember that Jesus doesn't change. You see, so often what people want to do with Jesus is they want to morph him to our modern times. I've heard some people say things about what Jesus would have done and what Jesus would have said. And sometimes I just want to ask them, have you ever read Jesus? Have you ever considered Jesus' life? Have you ever looked at the way he taught, the, way, the things that he spoke, and the things that he did? I think sometimes people have a hyper-lenient, hippie version of Jesus who's just cool with everything. But Jesus talked about eternal judgment more than any, any other New Testament author. Jesus was very severe in some ways. He held out to humanity not a broad path that leads to destruction, but a narrow path that leads to life that is difficult and hard. So Jesus doesn't change. He didn't operate one way 2,000 years ago, and all of a sudden now in our modern times morph into and blend into our culture. No, for him, it's not a fluid situation, the truth. He doesn't shift from age to age and from culture to culture. One thing I'll ask people sometimes when they say, Jesus, he would have taught this way. I'll just say to them, look, if that's what Jesus was really trying to communicate, he had a terrible way of, of getting that message across. If he was going to share something as radical, for instance, as uh, just exploding a, a biblical, traditional sexual ethic and just introducing something brand new to humanity, he would have had to really go over the top to make that clear. But instead, he went the other direction. He affirmed what had already been communicated in the Old Testament scripture. So Jesus does not change. But another thing for us that helps us uh, be steeled against false, false teaching is found in verse 9 and 10. He there says, that we should not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to, to them. Now, what's he talking about here? Here's the answer to that question. We don't know. What we know is that the Hebrew Christians, when they received this in Rome, uh, they understood what he was talking about. They knew what teaching was floating around in their midst, telling them, hey, you got to eat this way in order to be godly or in order to be spiritual. Now, there are some clues about what it might have been from the rest of the New Testament. Paul, for instance, when he went from city to city preaching the gospel, people were set free with the gospel and Gentiles came to Christ. 
And then Judaizers would come in after them and say, hey, no, if you really want to be a Christian, you need to be circumcised, you need to adopt Jewish ceremonial rites, and you need to eat the way that a Jew would eat in a, in a clean kind of way. So perhaps that's what these people were arguing with these Hebrew Christians about. You need to eat in a certain kind of way. And as somebody pointed out to me before service today, they said, you know, when I read that verse coming into church today, it just struck me that in the culture we live in today, a lot of times people are hyper-legalistic about what we eat. And if you think about it, that can so easily happen. Maybe somebody gets to a point in their lives where they look at someone and they say, I can't believe that you're eating that. I can't believe that you're eating that way. Your body is a temple. How could you put that in your body or something like that? But if I want to eat a chimichanga, leave me alone. I'm going to eat a chimichanga. But somebody said amen to that. That's what they got. That's what they got. I'm going home with that. <laughs> but this is so often what people do. They love to argue about these inconsequential things that are so peripheral to what God sees when he looks at a human being. He looks into the heart. He wants to set a person free. He wants to give them victory to rescue their lives. And for that, he gives them his grace. Grace which says, yes, I know that you're a sinner. I know that you've fallen short of my glory. I know that you're broken and despairing. I know that you've tried and tried and tried yet failed. But here is my grace for you. You see, this strengthens us against false teaching because some false teaching trends towards license and some false teaching trends towards legalism. And for that, we need the grace of God. We need to know that he is faithful to us even when we aren't as faithful as we'd like to be. You see, the core of the Christian life isn't what we do for God, but it's what he does for us. I know Christina and I are really looking forward to this kind of concept as we're away. We don't feel at all that we deserve anything or that God owes us anything. Uh, but it's going to be so nice to just be refreshed in the knowledge that it's not about what we do for God. It's about what God does for us. In fact, one of my main prayers while I'm away is for the Lord to, in a fresh way, remind me of just how small and puny I am. And that there's a big world with a lot of people in it and a lot of stuff that he wants to do. And it's a pleasure to be able to be used by him. But he's the big deal. And I'm really looking forward to just kind of being refreshed in that truth. All right, second exhortation for us to receive. Go to Jesus outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Go to Jesus outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Like I said, I'm lifting these directly from the text, so let's read it in verse 11 and following. He says, For the body of, bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So he reminds his Hebrew Christian audience who was familiar with the Old Testament sacrificial system that after the sacrifices were offered, they would then take the remains out of the camp and they'd burn them completely. So Jesus, he says, also, verse 12, suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. 
Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, there's a word that's repeated a few times in the paragraph we just read. It's the word outside. Did you see it there? The sacrifice, they would take it at the end after they'd offered it to God. All the remains, they'd take the sacrifice outside the camp and burn it. Jesus, it says, was crucified outside the city. In other words, not in Jerusalem, but outside of Jerusalem on the road coming into the city. On Mount Calvary, he was crucified. And we are to go outside the camp to bear the reproach that Jesus himself endured. Now, that would spark a little memory in the minds of the readers because they were familiar with the phrase outside the camp, not just from the sacrificial system, but from Moses. Because Moses set up a tent of meeting outside the camp, and he went and had his like devotional time out there with God outside of the camp. So they would remember that concept, that Moses went outside the camp, he met with God, and so we also should go outside of the camp and bear the reproach that Jesus endured. What is he saying there? What he's saying to us is that as believers, we have to prepare ourselves for increased marginalization in the environment that we're living in. We have to be prepared for uh, being rejected from the cultural norms and just kind of mentally and emotionally ready ourselves for living outside and and to to basically be outsiders in a sense. We have to prepare ourselves for that. And this is an important message for them, but it's also an important message for us. You see, there are some who think that Christianity or any religion really is for people who are weak. In other words, it's emotional immaturity, they would say, to embrace Christianity. Because in Christianity, someone is telling you that you're valuable. Someone is telling you the plan for your life and telling you what the meaning of life is. And someone is comforting you about trials and difficulties with the hope of heaven. And so some think that that is an evidence of immaturity. That what mature adults do is they figure out the meaning of life by themselves And they deal with hardships and just kind of move through them and that they don't need the hope of eternity or heaven in order to navigate the difficulties of life. But you see, that in and of itself is actually a lesser version of what it means to be mature or what it means to be an adult because it really, at the end of the day, is about you in those moments. But the believer comes to a place of saying, it's about the Lord and it's about others. And I might even have to suffer a little bit to cling to the Lord, and to serve and help others. That's maturity. That takes bravery to live that kind of life. And we've got to have that kind of perspective that we are called outside of the camp. I don't know if you have a favorite prophet in the Old Testament. This is the kind of thing pastors have, our favorite prophets. I don't know if you have a favorite prophet. If you do, tell me who your favorite prophet is in the lobby after service. I want to know who your favorite is. Is it Isaiah? Is it Daniel? Is it Ezekiel? I think my favorite prophet right now, it's changed over the years, but my favorite prophet over the last five years or so is Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote the book of Jeremiah, but then also the book of Lamentations. 
And Jeremiah was called by God when he was still in his mother's womb. God knew him, prepared him, set him aside for a long life of saying things that the people of Israel did not want him to say. He was kind of like the only guy doing it. There were a couple of others that would prophesy similar ways in similar ways that, that he did. But for the most part, there were lots of false prophets. So Jeremiah would come onto the scene and he'd tell everybody, hey, God's judging us. We're going to be carried away into captivity. You should just wave the white flag and surrender. And then the false prophets would come in and say, it's not true. God's got a party for us right here in Jerusalem. He totally forgives us. It's all good. There's no judgment whatsoever. And he was always outnumbered by these false prophets. This day came in Jeremiah's life early on in his ministry where he told the Lord how he felt about this difficult job that God had given to him. He's like, Lord, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, like they're not going to listen to me. So why do I have to do this? This is really tiring. This is fatiguing. And I'm not trying to say this is like my experience or something like that with you guys. Like, you don't listen to me. I'm not trying to say that. I just like that he was so resolved to keep going. But there was a moment of discouragement in his life. And this is what God said to him. Jeremiah's like feeling like, I think I want to quit. I want to give up. What would you say to somebody like that? I think I might say something like, hey, you could do it. You could keep going. I know it's really hard. Let's, you know, get away. Maybe you need a sabbatical. You know, like that might be the answer I give. This is what God said to Jeremiah. He said, Jeremiah 12, verse 5, if you have raced with men on foot and they've wearied you, how will you compete with horses? (laughs) He just looks at Jeremiah and says, wait, really, this is tiring you? Where you're at right now, this is fatiguing you because it's going to get worse. If you're tired from this, there's no way you're going to be able to do that. And I think that might be a helpful kind of concept for many of us because, man, if we like want to change doctrines and change historic biblical Christianity because of like a minor amount of pressure for our Christianity, man, what's going to happen when the pressure gets really real? No, what he's saying is you have to go outside the camp. You have to bear the reproach of Christ. You have to be willing to do that for your faith. All right, number three, let's go on in the passage. Our third exhortation is that we need to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. He says in verse 15, he says, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. All right, so here he tells us that we should give ourselves to praise. Now, how does this fit in with, you know, not giving in to false teaching and leadership and things like that? Well, you know, in the church, there's always something to complain about. But then also, if we always are setting our eyes on that which is difficult about the Christian life, then we might not endure that long. So it's good for us, as we're going through life, to be continually, that's the word he uses there in verse 15, continually, always, offering up a sacrifice of praise to God with our lips, the fruit of our lips, he says. It says in Psalm 69, verse 30, I will praise the name of God with a song, and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Now, look, I realize that when we sing songs to the Lord, some people are really into it, and some people are kind of into it, and some people are just not into it. 
you know. And, and if, if you're the kind of person where you say, like, I just don't really understand that time, you know, I don't understand, like, what, what, it, what it means that we're all coming together, we're singing for a while, it's just never been my thing, uh, I have sympathy for you. You know, I, it's not like a, I can't believe you don't like getting together with big groups of people you don't know and singing songs together. I can't believe that. I, I, I can understand. Uh, however, in Scripture, God's people come together and they sing songs to him. They praise him. They worship him. If what you don't like is that it's worship, then that's a problem. Because our whole life is supposed to be a life of worship. And what we're hoping for as we sing to the Lord psalms and hymns and spiritual songs according to Ephesians chapter 5. What we're hoping for is that that moment of praise to God is actually emblematic of your everyday life and experience. That you in your everyday life are a worshiper of God through the way that you live your life, the way that you handle your body, the way you handle your money, the way you work, that it's all worship, and that when you come together, when we come together and sing to him, it's like, this is what I've been doing all week in other forms, now I'm doing it in song form. So think of your life like a sentence, really long sentence, all these words, and then at the end is an exclamation mark. That's what the corporate singing is supposed to be. Your life is the sentence, and then the song time is the exclamation mark. This is, this is who I really am. This is how I really feel. This is, this is the way that I've been living my life for the Lord. And it can be really valuable for us. Uh, there's a theologian, I'm sure many of you have read him before, named J.I. Packer. And he said this, you know, sometimes you think about theologians and you think, oh, those wouldn't be the guys that would be like singers, worshipers, you know, they wouldn't be into that kind of thing. That's for the emotional people or something like that. But that, that wasn't J.I. Packer. He said this, he said, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? There's one thing to know things about God, but how can you really know God? Well, he says, the rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. You see, when we sing to the Lord, when we praise the Lord, it's a way for us to take these truths that we're learning about him and to get them, distill them into our hearts so that we actually know this about the Lord. Now, he tells us there that we're to continually do this, continually praise the Lord. So this means that at all times in life, there is something to praise the Lord about. If there's nothing else for you, then you have the cross of Jesus Christ to celebrate the Lord over and about. There's a famous quotation from another English pastor and theologian named Matthew Henry. He lived in the 1600s, so a little older. But listen to this. He told this story about he got robbed one time. On a journey, he got robbed, he got mugged, and this was his praise report. He wrote about it, a praise report. He says, I thank thee first because I was never robbed before. So that was like <laughs> Thanksgiving number one. Like, thank you, that's the first time. It's never happened before. Like, you protected me all these other times. Second, because although they took my purse, they did not take my life. You know, he's like, I'm glad I'm alive. You know, they took my, my wallet, but I'm still alive. He called it a purse. I wouldn't do that, but... <laughs> Third, because although they took my all, it was not much. He's like, I did. 
Fools on, joke's on them. I didn't have anything in there. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. Oh, I love that one. You know, Lord, thank you. You've worked in my life. I haven't felt the need to rob. You've provided for me. That's cool. You know, so we can always praise the Lord. But then he also says there in verse 16, do good and share what you have. I like that there's that order. You know, you praise God first. You see, some people are stuck in religiosity where they're setting their sights on doing good and sharing, but it's not responsive. It's not a response to what God has done for them. It's more religiosity. This seems to be the right thing to do. And so, therefore, I'm going to do these things because I want to be a good person. But, but believers say, God, thank you for who you are. I'm not a good person, but you saved me. You loved me. You've given me your grace. And now I want to respond to what you've done for me by doing good and sharing with others. Now, this is a simple but often forgotten exhortation. Do good and share with others. Share what you have. This is a simple exhortation. I know sometimes we, at least when I read the Bible, sometimes the way I do it is I just get all extreme about it. You know, so I'll read a little line, as simple as this, do good and share what you have. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, that means I need to sell my house and I need to give it away to somebody. And the reality is, like, every once in a while, like, of all the people that are listening to this teaching right now, there might be one person in this room that does this at some point over the next 50 years, but probably not. So how can we actually do that? Well, let's just make it more simple. Let's just think about, can I buy lunch for somebody? Can I see a young single mom who is trying to make ends meet and say, you know, I want to fill up her basket with groceries over and abundant, and I want, to, I want to buy her as much food as I can, you know, this paycheck. Can I leave an extra tip to someone who I can tell they could really use it? Could I support a missionary? Could I... Um, sign up to do foster care, you know, things like that that are a little bit more in the realm of, yeah, what you have, share that, you know, say, hey, I can help you in life. So that's just a good exhortation for us to remember. Okay, number four, our fourth exhortation. I'm really not looking forward to talking about this fourth one, but it's obey your leaders and submit to them. Obey your leaders and submit to them. I told you that I lifted all these directly from Scripture, so I didn't come up with this one by myself. It says in verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. So probably what he's talking about are people who are spiritual leaders, but before they were likely deceased, now they're alive. They're right now watching over our souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, and not with groaning, <laughs> always like that line, for that would be of no advantage to you. And then he says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Okay, so obey your leaders and submit to them. You know, there are some verses in the Bible that 
the age that you live in or the society that you live in, it's just easier to adopt them and to receive them. You know, Jesus says, like, love God and love others as yourself. And rarely are you going to hear people say, like, no, that's loving other people, that's bad. You know, usually in our society and culture, we would say, yeah, that's a, that's a good thing. Maybe we need to figure out what that looks like, but we agree, love each other. But there are times also in a society or culture where you read something in scripture and everything about us societally grates against the exhortation. I think this is one of them. Obey your leaders and submit to them. It just sounds like something no Californian ever would have written. (laughs) Now, it's clear he's not talking even about, although the Bible does say things about governmental leaders and leaders in the workplace, it seems he's not talking about that category here because he talks about watching over their souls and uh, those who will have to give an, as those who will have to give an, an account. So let's just think about this for a second. There are some assumptions, it seems, that the author is making. One assumption is that these people that he's referring to, these leaders, they are faithful gospel representatives. In other words, it would not cross the mind of these leaders to use their authority to manipulate or abuse somebody or to take advantage of them. You know, they want to faithfully represent the gospel that has been entrusted into their care. Another assumption that he's making is that the people who have followed them have made a decision to do so. In other words, there's nothing in the New Testament church that says, uh, hey, you know, someone is born into a position of authority within the church and you must uh, submit to whatever they say. No, in the Christian church, we pray ourselves and make a decision, what local church am I going to belong to? So we have a chance to look around and say, That's the kind of person, the manner of life, or the group of elders that I think that I could follow their lead in life. So at the end of the day, individually as believers, we have a serious decision to make. That's why at our intro to Calvary class that we do for people who are thinking about making Calvary Monterey their church home, we just tell them right off the bat, this is not at all a sales pitch in any way. We want you to know who we are and what we believe, and how we lead, and what our focus is. But if it's not you, then we believe there's a church out there for you, even if we're not it. So it's a decision that individual believers are making. And then a third assumption that he seems to be making is that the authority of these leaders is not intrinsic to themselves, but it is grounded in the word of God. In other words, these leaders... They're good leaders. They don't want submission to themselves. They want submission to God's word. So you're not going to see like the pastor's cars out in the parking lot after service where we tell you like, hey, wash our cars for us right now. Vacuum a little bit more. Like you're not going to see that kind of thing because what a real spiritual leader desires is submission to the word of God. Warren Wiersbe said it like this. He said, when a servant of God is in the will of God, teaching the word of God, the people of God should submit and obey. He talks about groaning. That's where the groaning comes from. You know, when I've had to have conversations with someone where their life is out of bounds, 
and I'm holding out scripture to them, and they say, look, it's not just something I'm struggling to obey. I want to do that, but I just struggle to obey it. That's normal to us as human beings. But when they say, I see what it says in the word, but I don't want to do that. I'm not going to live that way. I will not submit myself to God's word. That's where the groaning he talks about comes from. So uh, we want to be a people who submit well or obey our leaders and submit to them, follow them well. Now, he does say there in verse 17, keeping, they keep watch over your souls and they, want, they should be able to do it with joy and not with groaning. And I just want to say for a second, I just want to be nice to you guys for a second and just let you know that my experience has been, I mean, there's always some groaning attached to being a, a pastor of a church. So I'm not going to stand up here and be like, every single person over the last 11 years has just been such a treasure and a delight in my life personally. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you like that. There have been people that have been difficult for me to deal with, and I know that I've been difficult in the lives of some as well. Um... But in general, that joy, being able to serve the Lord with joy and not with groaning, I, I think I speak for all of the pastor, pastors here. I think we are able to serve the Lord with great joy as we do our part in watching over your spiritual health and your spiritual life. So thank you so much for being the kind of church that uh, you are. And if you want to know anything about the sabbatical that I'm really looking forward to, it's just that in verse 17. It's a burden to keep watch over people's souls. And I'm looking forward to a chance to just catch my breath and receive from the Lord before jumping at, back into keeping watch over people's souls. All right, verse 20 to the end of the chapter is his conclusion uh, where he just kind of lands the plane. And <clears throat> there's no massive exhortation I want to point out here uh, to you, they're just kind of, it's a very typical New Testament letter and the way that it, the way many New Testament letters close out. But there are some really neat ingredients for a healthy church that are found in this. So remember I told you at the beginning of the teaching about the raft on the Truckee River? Let's just imagine how could that raft get down the river really well, you know, where everybody's working together and there's, it's not just shouting and chaos, but it's working really well together. We've seen a bunch of those things already in this passage but I'll just show you a few smaller ingredients of it as we close out the letter together. One of them is found in verse 20 and 21, which is a benediction or a blessing. He says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a beautiful blessing. And in the shadow of everything that he's just said, that we've just studied, it's actually a really helpful thing for us to see. Because sometimes there can be an overemphasis in a church on a leader, a pastor, a teacher. And we can kind of come to the place of maybe even feeling that, man, I couldn't be equipped for life without them. I'm not saying that that's how you feel about me or anything like that, but that is a temptation at times in life. But here what we learn is, no, there's Jesus. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. He's the best pastor anybody could ever have. He's installed 
other leaders underneath him, but he's the ultimate shepherd, the chief shepherd, and he's the one who equips us with everything good that we might do his will. In other words, he's walking with us. He's strengthening us. He's helping us. So that's great. That's a, that's a real help in this, the knowledge regarding the chief shepherd. But then he goes on as he closes, and he says in verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. Now, I like this. After 13 chapters, he's like, hey, this was just a little guy. <laughs> you know, I had more that I would like to say. I've written to you really briefly. But that is a helpful exhortation, isn't it? Bear with my word of exhortation. That really helps the boat get down the river more seamlessly when we are able to receive the exhortations that come our way from Scripture. And then he says in verse 23, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes. So they were a church that knew about Timothy to whom First and Second Timothy is addressed, Paul's ministry companion. And they cared about Timothy. This is another beautiful ingredient. They cared about missionaries. They cared about those who were doing the kind of work that Timothy did. They were praying for them. And then verse 24, he says, Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. What this likely meant is that he's addressing a church, a group of Christians that are living in Rome. And so... Even though they're Hebrews, they're living in Rome, and he's writing to this little Hebrew remnant, and he's telling them wherever he is, we don't know where, but wherever he is writing the letter, he's saying, yeah, there's some fellow Italians that are here, and they're kind of over my shoulder saying like, hey, tell them we said hi, so I'm just going to put in a general thing. Everybody from Italy says hi. Grace be with, verse 25, all of you. So there's grace and greetings and just mutual love together uh, in, in this uh, little section of the letter. So just a beautiful love for each other in the church and a beautiful letter that we've had here in the book of Hebrews. And I can think of no better way to end our time in the book of Hebrews than by partaking of communion because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, better than the day of atonement. And so we're gonna partake of the Lord's table now as we close out our service together. Thank you for listening. If you'd like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our senior pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.